Welcome to Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? I'm Russell, founder of Newton Media Group. Today is Monday, July 31st, 2023. Today's episode is the chapter-by-chapter chapter review of Peter Hollands' audiobook, Think Less, Do More. This book is a psychological throwdown to your brain. Every chapter will get you motivated, moving, or slowly sliding into the first few steps of your next task goal. And you won't even realize it. There is no beating around the bush. This book is like rocket fuel. Part 1. The Action Mindset In the quest for a more organized, more productive, and more fulfilling life, there's certainly no shortage of advice out there. But there is one key feature that separates those strategies that work from those that never do. Action. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to improve your family life or relationships, achieve your career goals, improve your health, or pursue some other meaningful life goal. At some point, if you truly wish to transform your life, you'll need to cross over from where you are to where you want to be by taking action. In the chapters that follow, we'll explore what it really takes to perform in the top 1% of people and to achieve your dreams. We'll see that a bias toward action is the single most powerful mindset to cultivate, since it's this that will keep you focused, effective, and clear. There are many myths that may be holding you back. For example, the belief that you need to strive for excellence at all times. You need to constantly find ways to motivate yourself. To be like super successful people, you need to learn to banish fear and be completely confident. But what if you knew that none of this was required for genuinely transforming your life? In this book, we'll be looking at the single factor that has the power to move you forward in life and how to develop it every single day. We'll turn conventional wisdom upside down and learn effective ways to prioritize, make decisions, beat procrastination, get organized, and start taking real risks that bring real rewards. Let's dive in. Chapter 1. Lower Your Standards Yes, really. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Have you ever heard this? Perhaps you were one of those people who grew up with a parent telling you this. On its face, this advice seems sound, inspiring even. Try your best, do things as brilliantly as you can, and don't let yourself get away with half measures and lukewarm effort. Wouldn't it be great to hold yourself to high standards this way, to strive for excellence, and to apply yourself fully to your endeavors? Well, of course it would. But consider the unspoken part of this advice. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well, or else don't bother. To begin cultivating a mindset that favors action, we need to dig deep and unroot all those attitudes and beliefs that are actually working against us. Let's say you really did follow this advice and told yourself that it was excellence or nothing. You would do things properly or not at all. So you try, and guess what? Your first attempt is a little lackluster. Because you're a beginner, you don't get it done perfectly. Perhaps you fail outright. You set the bar high, and then don't meet it. You look at your decidedly unexcellent performance, conclude that it's worthless, and, obviously, give up. Giving up is the natural conclusion from advice that seems so reasonable at first. If you break this rule you set for yourself, this advice encourages you to think of it as a total failure. If it cannot be redeemed and it's not acceptable, then what else could you do but throw the whole goal away? So maybe you say you want to go to the gym. Eh? Chapter 2. Action is the beginning of motivation. In his book, Feeling Good, David D. Burns asks an interesting question. 
What comes first, motivation or action? Conventional wisdom tells us that we need motivation in order to act. After all, isn't this why motivational speakers exist? We think, perhaps unconsciously, that we need to find enough inspiration and energy before we can be roused into action. If we don't feel inspired or energetic, we usually don't act. But Dr. Burns claims that this kind of thinking is actually backward and that it's really that action creates motivation. Action makes you feel motivated, which in turn makes you want to do more. Have you ever felt like you were in the zone? Most likely you were enjoying the sensation of building up the momentum of motivation and inspiration. Perhaps we can blame a self-help culture that relentlessly insists that we bring passion and drive to everything we do. We talk about dreams and desire and having enthusiasm for our life purpose. Consequently, when we inevitably feel a bit lackluster about what we're doing, we may conclude that something is wrong. Maybe this isn't our life's calling after all. Or maybe the time isn't right. Even worse, maybe it's our cue to sit back and start blaming people or situations for not somehow providing us with enough incentive. We can make a kind of unconscious deal with ourselves that goes a little something like this. I'll act to improve my life, but not yet. First, I'm going to wait till it's really bad. The motivational speakers tell us, you've got to want it really badly. And because we don't really feel that way, we shrug our shoulders and put off taking action till later, when maybe we'll feel more fired up. The trouble is that the more you don't act, the easier it is to continue not acting. The opposite of momentum here is inertia, the tendency to keep on doing nothing. Whatever you were fearful about gradually starts to seem more and more scary as time goes on. Whatever laziness you felt initially seems to have really cemented itself. Any doubts or ambivalence seem to have embedded themselves as foregone conclusion. It's another self-fulfilling prophecy. The longer you wait to act, the harder it is to act. You might even miss opportunities or let the moment go stale as you delay and procrastinate. The alternative is to not sit around and wait for some magical set of external conditions that finally means you're permitted to act. The alternative is not to make your action dependent on any external criteria at all, especially not some flimsy and transient feeling of inspiration. Think of inspiration as something nice but very temporary. It's like a bright spark that gets a fire going but it only lasts for a few seconds before disappearing. If you want to maintain and build that fire after the spark has started it, you'll need something else. Hard work. If you're feeling uninspired, unmotivated, and lacking energy, the solution is a little counterintuitive. Do something. Even if it's something small, take action. This will give you the tiniest boost of confidence and feeling of self-determination. Even small actions mean you're now in the game. You're no longer passive, but proactively taking part in how Part 2. What does success really take? Chapter 3. Get comfortable with risk. Perhaps when you hear the word risk-taker, you think of something akin to thrill-seeker, i.e., someone who enjoys flinging themselves out of airplanes or handling venomous snakes for fun. If you're someone who doesn't think of themselves this way, you might believe that not looking for this kind of trouble is the smarter way to live. Perhaps you imagine the best strategy is staying put, keeping the status quo and not rocking the boat. According to Bill Ollett, a senior lecturer at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Sloan School of Management, this is actually an illusion. He says in many cases, doing things the way they've always been done is the most risky thing you can probably do, especially in business. Choosing to forfeit your choice is a choice, and a lack of action is, in its own way, an action. It's the action of keeping us right where we are. 
When you don't take a risk to change something in your life, you are, in effect, saying that you're happy with the status quo and are choosing it. Importantly, this is not the same as taking a blind gamble and leaping into something without a clear strategy. Instead, we might allow our fear and doubt to get the better of us and tell ourselves a story that makes any risk seem scary and foolish. We might start to replace reasonable risk in the thrill-seeker category, or assume that anything attempted with less than 100% certainty of success is foolish. This may sound like prudence and wisdom talking, but it's really nothing more than fear. Behind an inability to take action, maybe plain old fear. Someone tells us, there's a chance this might not work, and we hear, it won't work, so don't bother. Throwing yourself mindlessly into risky endeavors is as bad as never taking any risk at all, and that's because both come at a cost. Inside your comfort zone, things are safe and predictable, but they're also potentially stale and small. Outside your comfort zone is a world of potential growth, novelty, and achievement, but it's also a place of potential loss, humiliation, or danger. This leaves us in a curious predicament. If we want to stay safe, we forfeit growth and novelty. And if we want to grow and experience that novelty, we have to forfeit our safety. There is no way in life to have both safety and growth. But it's always your choice. When you make this choice, bear in mind, however, that you may still experience setbacks, disappointment, pain, and humiliation even if you stay in your comfort zone. And remember, too, that even if you step out of your comfort zone and the worst happens, there is still inevitably some value in taking a chance, challenging yourself, and learning something new in the process. Risk-averse people have made an assessment or a risk-benefit analysis. It's one that seems justified on the surface, but the more you look at it, the less sense it really makes. To prove this to yourself, all you need to do is find someone in their old age who consistently chose never to take risks, try something new, challenge themselves, or be uncomfortable. Find a person who never put themselves out there, never tried something different, never took a leap of faith. What kind of life do they lead? Chapter 4. Understanding the Four Levels of Action Grant Cardone is an author, sales trainer, and speaker, as well as the original component of the idea of four levels of action. According to him, action is not just a binary, i.e. doing it or not doing it, but something that falls into four distinct categories. One, doing nothing. Two, retreating. Three, normal levels of action. Four, massive action. For Cordon, nothing worthwhile in life happens by accident, but by you taking action. The greater the action you take, the bigger the chances of success. If you can take the right level of action and be disciplined, persistent, and consistent in that action, then you will succeed. In fact, according to Cordon, doing so is more likely to predict your success than any other factor. Let's start with the first one, doing nothing. It's what it sounds like. You're not doing anything in life to change anything, learn something new, acquire something, move forward, gain control or mastery, or create. You are staying still. Retreating is actually taking action, but it results in the reverse direction. Instead of making a change, you dig deeper into the status quo and act to undo any gains or cancel out any advances. It sounds counterintuitive, but this sort of action is often attempted because of imagined negative outcomes of taking action. Normal levels of action are also what they sound like. This is the realm where behaving achieves you a kind of average outcome. Normal lives, marriages, careers, and lifestyles that are considered conventional and sufficient. This compares drastically with massive action, which Cordon views 
as an entirely new level of operation. In fact, he sees action taken at this level as actually creating new problems with unreasonable actions that then warrant further unreasonable actions. At the same time, the realm of massive action is the place where real transformation, big success, and evolution occur. The difference between normal action and massive action is, according to Cordon, the big difference between an unremarkable person and one who has made a real success of their lives. The trick is that most of us think that normal levels of action are, well, normal. We think it's enough to do just enough and then achieve a kind of middling averageness. Cordon is super clear on this. Normal action will never get supernatural results. He asks people to really think about what average is, and if they really want that for themselves. The average person reads around one book a year, works only as much as they need to, is risk-averse, avoids challenge, and earns and achieves at a totally predictable and unremarkable level. Then, when normal action encounters resistance, obstacles, competition, adversity, or self-doubt, what happens? It's knocked back down and becomes worth even less than average. Giving any area of your life only middling amounts of attention and effort can never be a winning strategy because eventually that effort will dwindle. And Chapter 5. How to Overcome Resistance. Externalize it. According to author Stephen Pressfield, there's one main reason that people fail to take action when they really want to. Resistance. Internal fears, procrastination, self-sabotage, avoidance, and self-doubt are all forms of resistance that can prevent you from taking action, especially in the case of Pressfield's work, creative action. In his renowned book, The War of Art, Pressfield explores the idea of resistance and gives readers advice on how to push past it. Let's say that you're trying to complete a project that requires an enormous amount of creative input. For example, writing a novel. You've always wanted to write one and know that you would derive enormous satisfaction from the challenge and from seeing the completed work transform from abstract ideas in your head into something real on the page. And yet, as compelled as you are to achieve all this, you sit down, day after day, in front of the blank page, and produce nothing. Is it writer's block? Are you simply a poor writer? Pressfield would say that all you are experiencing is garden-variety resistance, that nagging inner voice that questions you, puts you down, and tells you that your efforts will be for nothing, so you might as well give up. This internal and self-defeating force seems trivial, but it's powerful enough to consistently stand between you and the things you know you want. Pressfield talks about this force like he would a force of nature, something constantly pushing against your efforts. It's all the negative thought patterns, blind spots, low self-esteem, self-biases, laziness, and plain old fear that keep us unable to act. Even worse, the more we procrastinate or avoid our task, the more our inner resistance might encourage us to think of this delay itself as proof that we are incompetent. It's not just artists who struggle with this. Anytime you're trying to create something new, you may encounter resistance, whether you're trying to invent something, compose clear communication, or launch a business endeavor. Pressfield states it clearly, you are not your resistance. He makes this point again and again to emphasize the fact that procrastinating on a task is not proof that you should give up or evidence of your lack of ability or competence. Simply, feeling resistance is normal and not a reason to give up or give in. All it really is? A common reluctance that all human beings experience during the creative process and nothing to get worked up about. 
the only response we can have is to acknowledge it and take action anyway. So, if you sit down and find yourself unable to write a single sentence, your mind might start up with a complicated internal stream of self-doubt and criticism. This is hopeless, and your idea is really boring anyway. Why don't you wait till you have something interesting to say? Admit it, you have zero skill as an author. Oh my God, even if you did finish this stupid book, can you imagine how embarrassing it's going to be when everyone reads it? Okay, so you're encountering resistance. But what do you do once you realize this? Let's say you start psychoanalyzing yourself and trying to argue back the inner critic. Maybe you're this way because your parents... Part 3. Learning to say yes, learning to say no. Chapter 6. One trick to double your chance of success, implementation intention. So, what makes some people better able to stick to their goals and implement new habits while other people fail to do so? You might wonder if it's self-discipline, intelligence, grit, motivation. But actually, it might be none of these things. A study in the British Journal of Health Psychology had researchers asking 248 people to try to build a new exercise habit over a period of two weeks. People were divided into three groups. The first was the control group, and they were simply asked to track their exercise frequently. The second group was the motivation group, who was asked to track their frequency but also watch a presentation about the health benefits of exercise. The third group also watched the presentation, but was asked to make a plan for when and where they would exercise in the coming week. They completed the sentence, During the next week, I will partake in at least 20 minutes of vigorous exercise on day, at, time, in, place. Can you guess how each group did? Up to 38% of group one exercised at least once per week. Interestingly, the second group showed similar levels. The presentation clearly had no impact. The third group exercised, on average, at least twice a week, double the frequency of anyone else. In other words, simply writing down in black and white the when and where of their intention made group three participants reach their intention at twice the rate of groups who didn't. Reading or hearing about the benefits of exercise meant nothing, i.e. motivation. It was purposefully stating your intention for where and when that made the difference. The sentence the researchers asked Group 3 to create is called an implementation intention. It's simply a plan you make beforehand about when and where you will act, or how you intend to implement a certain habit. It works because human habitual behavior is often triggered by certain cues. For example, whenever we find ourselves in a movie theater we suddenly feel like eating popcorn. The most powerful cues are often time and place cues. If you set an implementation intention, you're harnessing the time and place and telling yourself that when a certain situation arises, you will act in some predetermined way. It's an if X, then Y conditional statement. It doesn't matter what the action is or what habit you're trying to build. Being clear about how you'll behave makes it more likely that you will behave in that way when the time and place come to be. Follow-through, then, is not a question of discipline or willpower, but simply a concrete and clear intention to do so. This means that if you have an intention, it'll more likely come to be if you can be specific and say exactly what you will do and when and where. Instead of, I'm going to eat better, you could say, I'm going to have a green smoothie every morning for breakfast in my kitchen at 7 a.m. Other examples? I will journal for five minutes before I sleep every evening at 10 p.m. I will work on my novel in my bedroom before school every day. Chapter 7. Make a not-to-do list. Are you one of those people who has a firmly entrenched 
to-do list habit. This way of doing things is so automatic for many of us that we never really stop to question the underlying premise. If you have a few tasks to accomplish, doesn't it make sense to make a list of them and work your way through systematically? The thing is, action isn't just about what you get done. Yes, you want to make sure that you know what's important and that you're spending most of your time on the things that are. Action, then, is also about what you consciously choose not to do. Whenever you have a priority and say, this is important, you are simultaneously saying, and that means this other thing is not as important. A to-do list can be an essential part of organizing and planning your day, or it can be a time sink and a distraction. A to-do list fails when it tricks you into thinking that there is value in being busy, no matter what that busyness is. You feel like a million things are competing for your attention, and you get the thrill of thinking that you are hard at work ticking off all those things as you work your way down the list. But how many of those tasks are genuinely adding value? How many of those tasks brought you demonstrably closer to your goals? Good decision-making is elegant decision-making. It's something we do with purpose, clarity, and strategy. We'll look more closely at this in a later chapter. A to-do list is a mini-schedule of tasks we've decided we need to do that day. However, if we haven't properly thought through why we need to do those tasks and in what order of priority, then we risk wasting time with useless busy work. Enter the not-to-do list. This contains all those tasks that you might be tempted to waste time with but shouldn't. Things that you can comfortably eliminate from your life forever with no real loss of value. What kind of things go on this list? Here are some ideas. All those things you've already said no to and placed a boundary against. Things that you know are addictive and distracting. Social media, for example. Other people's responsibilities and obligations. Things that don't add anything to life and don't strictly need to be done at all. Bad habits. Tasks or activities that are actively harmful to you. Things that are a tiny bit useful, but get in the way of more impactful tasks that should come first. Think about the last to-do list you made. How many items did you note down? If you had a sprawling list of 12 tasks, chances are that many of them simply should not have been there. The saying goes, if you have more than one priority, then you don't have any priorities. Granted, average people do tend to have more than one thing on their to-do list, but it's worth reminding yourself that if everything on your list seems urgent, you have a priority problem. Decide on what you don't care about. None of us have infinite resources. None of us will live forever. And given that there's only so much time and energy, we have to choose which paths in life we want to walk down and which we're happy to leave unexplored. You might think that you automatically know what you don't prioritize. Chapter 8. Find Your Priorities If you continue to be fastidious about what you won't do, you might find that you naturally gravitate toward a clearer understanding of your larger life priorities. The following is a technique that keeps you organized and focused on what truly matters. The Burner List Blogger and author Jake Knapp hates to-do lists, claiming that most to-dos are just reactions to other people's priorities, not mine, and no matter how many tasks I finish, I'm never done. More to-dos are always waiting to take their place. To-do lists just perpetuate the feeling of unfinishedness that dogs modern life. However, he also feels like they're unnecessary evil and still uses them. After much trial and error, he created his own system called the burner list. The method is simple. First, gather pen and paper, and with the paper in portrait orientation, make two tall columns. 
The left column is for the front burner, and the right column is for the back burner. Imagine that this is a cooker top with four burners in your kitchen. The front burner, the left-hand column, is where your single most important project is listed. Importantly, this is just one priority, no more. Write down this task in the top left quadrant, and then you can list the separate smaller tasks needed to address it below. Knapp recommends also keeping some counter space in the lower left quadrant below your priority. This space is simply there for when you need to add more tasks to the main priority. But just like in a real kitchen, the goal is not to fill up your counters. It's to keep them clear for when you need the workspace. The back burner, i.e. the right-hand column, is for your second most important task. List out the tasks you need to tackle in the same way you did for the front burner. What about the lower right quadrant? Well, that's for everything else. The kitchen sink. This is for any miscellaneous tasks or items that don't belong to either your first or second most important projects. This means that, yes, even if you have two or three more important projects, they go into the kitchen sink with everything else if they're less important than Project 1 and Project 2. In a kitchen, the cook will always focus on the most important dish on the front burner. He doesn't completely ignore what's on the back burner, but he has a very clear idea of what gets his focus at any one moment. There's no guilt or confusion or angst over focusing on the priority either. This method is intentionally simplified to force you to prioritize. According to Knapp, nobody ever needs more than one priority to focus on with a strong secondary project. Everything else can wait. Knapp also explains how he will have a current list that he'll scribble on over the course of a few days, but that the list is frequently discarded once it has served its purpose. Trying this method yourself, you may find that the items in the kitchen sink can often be ignored, delegated, or paused indefinitely. At the same time, as you complete tasks on the front burner, you can start to add more things, perhaps move something from the back burner to the front, or consider the items in the kitchen sink. But do this only when the front burner is cleared. The burner list is about... Part 4. Getting Organized Chapter 9. Simplify Your Decision-Making with a Superstructure Method Sometimes it's pretty obvious what you need to do. For example, you don't have any clean clothes. So there's no question that you have to do the laundry. Other times, you're facing a big life decision that requires time, thought, and reflection. Maybe you need to decide whether to get divorced, move houses, have a child, choose a degree, downsize, upsize, or make some other big permanent change to the way you live your life. When things are not clear-cut, we need to contemplate possible options weigh them, make decisions, and come to an action that is, hopefully, the best it can be. But there's a fact we cannot avoid. The decision-making process is not the same as action. Research, planning, considering options, deciding, assessing risk, thinking, these things all have their value. But at the end of the day, none of them is action None of them will actually carry you from where you are to where you want to be. Even worse, if we dawdle and delay too long with an inefficient decision-making process, we can start to actually undermine our chances of taking beneficial action. For example, your team has a great new idea they want to implement, but your company immediately saddles the whole thing with pages and pages of boring and unnecessary documentation to fill out, risk assessments, meetings, and rubber stamping. The result is that the passion for the project drains away before anything can be launched. That's because, while planning and decision-making are essential, too much oversight and justification can stifle action and lead to a whole load of nothing. 
Does this mean you have to prioritize action no matter what and just do something even when you're not sure what you're doing or why? Of course not. Rather, it's about a mindset shift where taking action is a part of the decision-making process. Think about the exciting new work project. Management might launch into a million different box-ticking exercises to make sure they're doing things by the book. But the truth is, beyond a certain point, they can't predict how things will play out. There's only one way to really know if the plan will work, and that's to try it. Your boss might say, It's a nice idea, but I need you to do some market research first, because I suspect there isn't much interest. On the other hand, she could also say, I don't know if there's any interest. Why don't you do a free short run this weekend and see who shows up? That will allow us to gauge initial interest. In the first case, she's dealing with an unknown variable, interest levels, by continuing to plan and deliberate. In the second case, action itself is a way to learn more about that unknown. Instead of guessing and trying to predict, you test, you try it out and see what happens. This saves you time, gets you answers, and moves things along. Whether there is or isn't any interest is beside the point. After that weekend of trying it out, you'll certainly know more than you did if you'd simply waited and tried to predict interest in a hypothetical or abstract sense. This principle of eliminating unnecessary steps and using action as a part Chapter 10 David Allen's GTD Getting Things Done The acronym Getting Things Done, GTD, refers to one of the most well-known and widely used personal productivity strategies out there today. The method was created by author and productivity expert David Allen, and the first edition of the book with the same title was released in 2001. After 20 years, it's reasonable to conclude that the system has stood the test of time. If you use the GTD methodology correctly, you should find that it makes it easier for you to remain calm while working, to accomplish more, to be more creative, and to keep track of all the basics, including issues relating to both your job and your personal life. Basically, you create a written or digital record of everything significant, such as tasks, interests, projects, and other important data that's currently taking up space in your head, then work through it systematically, taking action. You externalize all of this and then systematically break it down into specific, actionable work items and get to work on each, never losing sight of what your very next task is and how it fits into the bigger picture. To help you achieve this goal, Alan supplies a full set of tools, methods, tips, and techniques. Now, the book itself is highly detailed and more than 300 pages long, but it's possible to understand the gist of the overall system and begin to implement some of its insights right now in your own life. Naturally, Alan has the all-important bias for action and uses action as the ultimate benchmark for success. GTD has five simple steps. Capture, process, organize, review or reflect, and engage. 1. Capture Our brains are better at processing information than storing it. It's just the way we've evolved. That means that we gain an advantage if we can use some sort of external data storage, i.e., keep track of everything we encounter, and make sure that when we encounter something useful, it doesn't just flit away again, forgotten forever. Building such a second brain frees up space and energy that you can then dedicate to higher-order intellectual, creative, or analytical tasks. Ultimately, you become more efficient. Not to mention staying organized this way actually allows you to set priorities and focus rather than just being reactive to demands and stimuli as they emerge in your environment. So, the first step in the process is to write down everything that comes to mind. Yes, everything. 
This could be books or articles you want to read, questions you want answered, ideas you want to explore, chores you need to stay on top of, goals, tasks that are required on the way to those goals, exploratory ideas and concepts, notes, shopping lists, records, all of it needs to be captured and placed in a kind of inbox for processing. Tips. Whenever you catch yourself having the thought, I need to, I should, I ought to, then take this as a cue that you need to capture and document there and then whatever you're thinking about. If you don't, one of two things could happen. You could have an open loop that hangs around and acts as a continued source of anxiety. Or else... Part 5. Overcoming the Roadblocks. Chapter 11. How to Use the Character Alarms Method. Imagine a 20-something student who's just earned a coveted spot on a difficult graduate program. They're smart, driven, and compassionate, but within a few months, they start to seriously suspect that their place in the program was just some kind of wild fluke. They look at the other students and feel inferior. Could the admissions team have made a mistake letting them in? While they assume that all the other students are comfortable in finding the work easy, they feel as though they don't truly deserve to be there. They don't belong. It's only a matter of time before they're found out to be a complete fraud. Consequently, the student finds themselves procrastinating more and more, skipping class, or brushing off their success. You might recognize this crushing feeling as imposter syndrome, and, indeed, it can be a major impediment to taking action. If you're secretly convinced that, in a way, you have already failed, i.e. that any evidence of success is not to be trusted, then, of course, you would be reluctant to take action and prove to everyone just how inferior you are. So you avoid putting yourself out there, delay the moment where you'll have to be evaluated or observed, and steadfastly run away from any challenge or competition. The problem, of course, is that your feeling of being an imposter is completely an illusion. It's a dangerous illusion, because if it causes you to shy away from beneficial action, it may morph over time into a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not difficult to see how. After months of procrastinating and avoiding hard work, the student, in our example, genuinely does find themselves performing at a lower level than others on the program who have faith in themselves. Imposter syndrome is the result of a particular cognitive distortion that interprets everything through the lens of incompetence. Failures are exaggerated, successes are dismissed, or even interpreted as additional evidence of one's lack of worth. I got an award because they felt sorry for me. Negative self-talk, procrastination, perfectionism, and extreme fear of failure all mean that it's especially difficult to do the one thing that you need to take action. There are many suggestions for overcoming imposter syndrome, but when it comes to encouraging action specifically, there is one especially good technique, the character alarms method. This method was invented by executive coach Eric Partaker. The big idea is that you create a character who then acts as your proxy. By embodying this character, essentially acting as though you were them, you're able to bypass all your self-limiting beliefs and get around imposter syndrome. In a way, believing that you are an imposter is already a way of identifying with a character. Only in this case, the character is an undeserving fraud. The character alarms method counters this tendency by allowing you to see the world through the eyes of someone who isn't burdened with this self-bias. It may seem cheesy that you could just flip the switch and become someone else, but you may be surprised at just how easy it is to do and how effective. Set an alarm on your phone for all those times during the day you... Chapter 12. Beat Procrastination with Microtasks. Do you suffer from procrastination? 
The first thing is not to panic. It's very, very normal. You've probably heard that the best way to beat procrastination is to just start with a small task and go from there. This is excellent advice, but it also tends to work mostly for tasks that are less complex. If you're putting off cleaning the kitchen, for example, this approach will help you gather momentum and break out of that stagnant state of inaction. But there are tasks that are more complex and intimidating than cleaning the kitchen. And for this, you'll need a more defined strategy, such as using microtasks. Self-help guru Steve Pavlina suggests that you break down your entire project into microtasks first, from the start to the very end, before taking any action. What counts as a microtask? That's easy. Anything that cannot reasonably be broken down any further. These tasks are usually 10 to 20 minutes long and have a definite moment that you can identify as a natural stopping point. Part of the value of microtasks is also that they are arranged in sequence, i.e. in a plan that essentially outlines a step-by-step approach for how to tackle any task. When you're compiling such a list of microtasks, keep focused by narrowing in on just one verb per item. Verbs matter because they're action words. They tell you exactly what you're doing. Sometimes progress on a task can stall because you have only the vaguest idea of what you're actually supposed to be doing, or you have ill-defined items on your to-do list like think about vacation or sort out bathroom cupboards. What does sort out really mean? And how will you know when you've thought about your vacation enough and can tick this item off the list? As you make your list of microtasks, focus on each item's single objective. Just the act of writing everything down may help you break some tasks down or combine several smaller ones. Imagine you had the task of arranging a going-away party for a colleague at work. It's not a mammoth task, but it will take some effort and the clock is ticking. Let's say you know you have to plan a party, and this obligation hovers constantly at the back of your mind, but you find yourself repeatedly putting it off. Why? Because plan a party is a big, complex, difficult task. It has no clearly defined parameters, so who even knows just how big and stressful it is? Can you imagine sitting down at a desk right now and planning a party? Where do you start? How do you know when you're finished? You may sense all of this unconsciously and decide that plan a party is just a boring, difficult hassle, so you put it off. You do what you can to avoid that knot of complexity. It's just too much. But here's what it might look like if you were to break that all down and create a list of microtasks instead. 1. Brainstorm ideas for an overall theme. 2. Choose a theme. 3. Book a meeting room. 4. Double-check that there are no major commitments for the office on a chosen afternoon. 5. Create an invitation containing all necessary information. 6. Send the invitation. Chapter 13. Work with your ultradian rhythms. One final roadblock on the path to better productivity is one that may be harder to put your finger on. Call it tiredness, fatigue, or even burnout. But there comes a point at which we're pushing against our body's natural physiological limits. You've probably heard of circadian rhythms. But did you know that the 24-hour sleep-wake cycle is not the only one your body moves through? Ultradian comes from the Latin word for outside and day. It refers to all those rhythms that are shorter than the 24-hour daily cycle, ranging from minutes to up to 10 or 12 hours. In this book, we've repeatedly returned to action as the fundamental point at which real change is made, and the only place from which to learn, achieve, and understand. While all of this is true, however, there is value in considering when one takes action. If you've ever tried pushing past your body's innate sense of rhythm, you already know what it feels like. Near impossible. 
It's like doing a heavy workout at 2.30 in the morning. It just doesn't make sense. Working with rather than against one's own rhythms is not about slacking, doing less, or giving yourself permission to be lazy. Rather, it's about consciously deciding not to make things harder for yourself than they need to be and not choosing to make an enemy or competitor of your own body. When you optimize when you do certain actions, you preserve precious energy and get more out of the effort you do expend. This is more elegant, a lot easier, and ultimately gets more done in the long run. In the 1950s, sleep researcher Nathaniel Kleitman found that human beings move through a sleep cycle that's roughly 90 to 120 minutes long which lines up with the sleep stages of alert sleep, light sleep, REM sleep, and deep sleep. But there are cycles and stages to waking life, too. Kleitman called these broader waking rhythms the basic rest activity cycle. But today we call them ultradian rhythms, and we use them to explain why we seem to move through a 90 to 120-minute cycle of alertness and energy. Generally, the ultradian rhythm is as follows. Your body achieves a period of high alertness every 90 to 120 minutes. This comes in a wave and peaks before giving way to a low energy period where you feel tired again. Then the cycle repeats. This means that there are several times during the day when you are naturally more energetic and able to work and times when you are naturally geared up to rest. The idea is to simply line up your activities to fit these rhythms. Don't waste an ultra-alert period by doing nothing, but at the same time, don't force yourself to push through what should be a rest period. During a peak energy period, you may experience challenge and demand as exciting and inspiring, and your overall state is arousal. However, when you're winding down and energy levels are dropping, these same challenges and demands might be perceived more as stress and cause you feelings of overwhelm and anxiety. Anders Ericsson is a researcher who's been studying high performers like athletes, musicians, artists, and chess players for many years. His discovery was that the most successful people tended to train themselves in short bursts rather than long, grueling... You have just listened to Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to newtonmg.com for more information or to bit.ly slash Peter Hollins to gain access to the author's free resources. See you next week for the audiobook preview of another great title.